my business is my business, my life is my life, but where can I successfully integrate them to make it work so I'm not living these different lives? It is time to stop living a divided life. When your life is divided between home and work, personal and professional, you're vulnerable to all sorts of relationship troubles and everyday friction. Now life is challenging enough and feeling so divided on top of all we are navigating is breaking us from the pressure of it all. And I know so many people are feeling this right now, right? When you're showing up as one person at work, another at home, your relationships inevitably get strained. Your attention is pulled in different directions. It's hard to focus or even know who to trust. Burnout results when you try to appease competing expectations that make everyone else happy, but leave you feeling spent. And you feel out of alignment with what matters most, your health, your values, your most important relationships, and feel at the mercy of responding to every need like it's an emergency, further sacrificing your clarity and confidence. A divided life delegates your power to the opinions of others, and this way of living feels fear. And you're left at the mercy of pleasing others as all the things that matter to you feel like they're slipping out of your control. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We've been living divided lives long before the pandemic put those divisions up front and center. Author Parker Palmer writes about this phenomenon of modern living in his book, A Hidden Wholeness. He explains that fear is the chief reason we divide our identities across different spheres, work, family, friends, self. In the process, we end up concealing our true identities, our whole self. And we're afraid of so much. And gosh, for good reason, right? Getting sick, not being able to provide for our families, being misunderstood, creating conflict, missing out, not feeling satisfied with life or work. And our fear causes us to never quite show up and lead from our full, whole self. Now, fear is natural and is an important emotion that guides and protects. But when your fear moves from fleeting to being constant or chronic, it leaves you in a hypervigilant state where protective behaviors like perfectionism, avoiding failure at all costs, and decision-making from a sense of urgency become the norm. And we're always wearing whatever protective mask is appropriate for the circumstances we find ourselves in. (sighs) And switching in and out of those protective masks is exhausting. Now, I don't believe the solution to living a divided life means we should kill or cure our fear, as many teach and preach. Getting rid of fear is not possible, but numbing fear is, and this is a dangerous practice that cultivates a divided life and moves you away from living connected to your important relationships and meaningful work. It also moves you away from feeling connected to yourself and all your inner system is caring and doing for you. Leading with fear means you avoid being truly seen in your struggle and furthering the divide in how you do life. The impact has left us feeling confused about who the heck we truly are, overthinking every aspect of our life and wondering if we can ever trust what we see. When we don't trust our instincts and our hard-earned wisdom along with the ability to set and maintain boundaries, it further perpetuates the divided life. 
And it's also harder to lead with courage and conviction. My guest today has done the work and continues to do the work to get clear on how she leads herself and others and not letting fear divide her from what she values and who she loves most. Stacia is an entrepreneur, a mama, speaker, adventurer, thrifter, and a science of style expert who thinks bodies are just about the coolest thing on earth. And I'm with her. She is the founder and creator of the Revel You Shun, an online community of crazy brave women who are using their closets to heal their shame, flex their brave muscles, cultivate their creativity, and create some wildly fabulous outfits while they're at it. You can see why I had Stacia on the show, right? She has inspired many thousands through her TED Talk, her wildly popular and now retired Stacia's Style School, and her numerous podcast recordings and guest speaker gigs, along with her ability to cultivate community where collective braving and collective healing are the name of the game. We covered some incredible territory in this episode around work, life, and family integration. Pay attention to when Stacia talks about how our closets are a powerful trailhead to what we are dealing with in our lives. And notice what led to Stacia's big shift in her signature offering. She walks through this in a way that I suspect will lead you to a big aha. So pay attention and listen for the very nuanced points Stacia made around boundaries and taking ownership of them. Now, please welcome Stacia Savasnik to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I'd like to start first going back to when you moved to your current hometown. And I'm, let me see if I say this name right. Brattleboro. Is that Brattleboro. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Brattleboro, Vermont. Mm-hmm. And your original plan back then, from what I understand when I was doing my research mm-hmm. uh, for our interview today, was that you're going to be there for a couple of years while your husband attended school and then go back to working and living overseas after mm-hmm. he completed his program. Mm-hmm. Well, you're still in Brattleboro, Vermont, several years later. What happened? Fourteen years later. What happened that? What happened that altered that dream and your professional path? You know, it's. I had, I had a baby who had complex medical needs and that was the biggest disrupt and pivot of, of my life. My, my husband and I had just um, finished the Peace Corps. We lived and served abroad in the country of Moldova and really loved that international work. So my husband came back, decided to go to school and study conflict transformation to do peace work. I had gone to Costa Rica and gotten my teaching English as a second language, as a foreign language certification. I had gone to Nicaragua to do a Spanish immersion program because I learned to speak Romanian, not a super helpful language, unless you're going to go to Romania or Moldova. Like there's two countries where that language is useful, but it was a romance language. So I figured I would go do a Spanish immersion. So we were setting ourselves up to have this international life. And the idea was, you know, he would have the full-time employment. I would teach English on the side, have, you know, raise a family. And I would teach English because I love teaching. I love educating. I love, like, that's just something that I, I love so much. So it was this perfect plan. And then we have a child with these complex needs and we were immediately married to a hospital. Mm. And there was no way... It, it, <laughs> There was just no way I was leaving the support of Children's Hospital in Boston. So, you know, we didn't do anything local. We had all of her services over in Boston. And 
It was, I mean, it was, it was an unbelievable first, you know, three to five years of her life. They were, I mean, she had multiple, multiple issues. At one point we had about 12 specialists that we were seeing. We averaged between, and this sounds bananas and I tend to be the queen of hyperbole. If you follow me online at all, that's one of my things, but we actually averaged between four and nine doctor's appointments a week for about five years. So it was a really intensive time for me. And I became so dependent on those providers and the sort of the community that I built around taking care of this child, this incredible child that there was just no way I was going to leave it. And so the transition actually, you know, I sometimes look back and I'm like, that was amazing. We just like let go of that dream without even a thought because this love for this little child that we didn't know was going to survive or not. Like everything just went into supporting this child. And I, I, I am one that tends to struggle with, with change and, or, you know, with dreams that, you know, don't get realized. And this was just, there was no struggle. I I almost can't believe it, but there was no struggle and just being like, okay, that's not our life. This is our life now. Um, and it's different than we anticipated. And you know what? It's kind of awesome. Mm. So for you, there wasn't any tension. It was just almost like what was going to be dissipated and this new truth, this new love and this new life was just, it felt so true and present and real. There wasn't any negotiating for you. It wasn't inner inner turmoil. It was just truth and moving forward. It was. And I don't think... I don't think I had space for much more than that because it was such an intensive time. It was just this, for me, it was a radical acceptance. This is my new life. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm so fortunate to have this incredible child that's going to teach me so much. And, you know, when you're fighting for your kid's life, there is, yeah. there, <laughs> it's just, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if I would have had a different experience and something kind of would have kinked up the way, there would have been more, more, more resentfulness. But I was like, do I want my life of teaching English and living abroad or do I want to keep my kid alive? This is, it was a, no, this, it was a false is, dichotomy. The, yeah, you know what I mean? It was like, it was just it, radical acceptance. Like, this is it. This is my new life. And you know what? I signed up to be a parent. This is it. This is actually what I signed up for and all that that means. And so my other dreams, uh, that's fine. I can, I can realize them in other ways. So it was, it was, it wasn't a hard transition for me. You know, that's powerful. I, I resonate a lot with what you're sharing, different circumstances, but with my own daughter's diagnosis on the spectrum and the appointments and really just the interdependence it felt like of the team we were supporting Mm -hmm. each other and this Mm -hmm. focus because I knew for me early intervention was gonna is was everything it was gonna set her up for more choices and more freedom and there wasn't an it was like it wasn't blinders it was just a radical focus and that's Mm -hmm. the sense and it just it felt like this is the world and it but everything else was going on outside of me but our little bubble (laughs) was in this zone Yeah. What impact did the love and support of your local community during that time have on how you lead yourself and even your community today? You know, I, it's such a, 
the, the support that I received from my community. So we moved here when Raisa was six months old and I didn't know a single person. My husband was in grad school full time and working full time because I couldn't work because I was, I was, you know, special needs, you know, I'm gonna throw air quotes around that. Like I was a medical yeah. mother. So the work that I, I, I was so involved in only the medical care and the medical community, they were my, they were my people, right? And so we had every week that, you know, the typical therapies that we had for our child were we had, she's hearing impaired. I don't even know if that's the correct, she has hearing loss, right? So right off as an infant, we started with a sign language teacher in our home, oh. which was super fun, like baby sign language, but like to the next level, <laughs> it was super right, cool. Right. And we had, you know, occupational therapy every week. We had physical therapy every week. And we had a speech language pathologist every week for oral motor or oral motor development stuff. And, and I, you know, these, the, they were all women, these providers, you know, and I, and I look back and I'm like, they kind of like, it was like 10% their vocation, 90% supporting Stacia. <laughs> is really so much of what they're I agree. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're working with a mama who's like a brand new mother in a brand new community that has no family support. You know, my family, my husband's family doesn't live locally. And I was I was on my own doing some really intensive stuff. You know, my wasn't long before we moved here. Raisa was in surgery. She was in a coma for eight, you know, eight days. And then the, oh, wow. I mean she was on she was on life support. I mean, we've been through the stuff with her and then tube feeding and multiple surgeries, anesthesias, blood draws. I mean, just the number of things I was frazzled. I Mm. was raw. I was tender. And these women would come over to do, you know, to stretch Raisa's fingers. And they're like, maybe they're doing that. But mostly I'm crying on their shoulder asking, like, I don't know how to do this. I, <laughs> this is hard. I'm tender. I'm raw. I need somebody to hear my story. I need somebody to say, this is hard. It's okay. You're struggling, right? So that, you know, if I look at the work that I do now with women, you know, I've just, you know, I taught style school for five years. So you come in and you think you're talking about the pants, And you talk about the pants for five seconds, and then it's the stories about the pants, what does pants say to us, you know, that you're, they should be this size, you, you know, you go shopping, you can't find a pair of pants, so you blame your body, or you grow and your pants don't fit anymore, and then the the stories, the hurt, the ache, the, all the stuff that comes up, that's really what my work is. Right. So like I can say my job description, personal stylist will get you in the right pair of pants, whatever. That's like 5% of the work. The real work is navigating the emotions that we carry in our bodies and our pants and our clothes and like all of that. That's the work. And I look at these women who were, you know, early intervention, birth to three, when we aged out of that program, I cried for a month because I oh. lost some of my greatest supports, right? Wow. And I had to graduate to these other women who did like they. There was like there was this lack of con- this continuum of care is so important, not for the kid as much as it was for me, right? I mean, if you went through early intervention, you know that like it's so it's so incredibly critical, and oh, so I. 
I look and say so much of the work we do isn't actually the work that we do, right? Like Mm -hmm. our vocation doesn't end up being, the vocation can be pretty narrow, personal style. The work that I do is way outside of that, but because it's connected, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, my gosh, my brain is going a few different places. And on a personal note, just thinking back to some of Hazel's providers back then, and it was time to move on for everyone else but me. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'm like, but I need you. And they're like, we can't bill insurance for that. You're Hazel's doing great. And I'm like, but me, because you get it, you get my story, you get her. What if, what if something comes up? And, and it was like launching me to trust mm-hmm. me in this, this aspect of motherhood. Mm-hmm. But the loneliness of that time combined with the fierceness of the time, I, it sounds like you get that. There's this sense of clarity and purpose. And, and in, for us, it wasn't like literal life or death. Like you were navigating as I'm sitting here empathizing with that and even feel, feel emotional for me. The tenderness was helping her be in a world. Like, how do I help her navigate a world that may not be ready for her? And I think there's parts of that that was aspect for you too. Absolutely. And I also just love what you're saying and recognize, I mean, I have a, I will always and still do occupational therapists and speech and language pathologists are like, they're like, they're in my heart. We're so much more than our titles, right? Mm-hmm. And when we are with people, we are with stories. Mm-hmm. We are with the, the the catalyst is is our children. The catalyst is those dang jeans. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother story. Being mm-hmm. five foot two and curvy. They did back in an 80s child. They did not make a diversity of, of sizes like they are today. Today, I, I mean it's like choices. I'm so happy, but mm-hmm. you know. The story wasn't about the genes. It was about, and not even about how they fit, but it's not finding something that fit mm-hmm. and feeling left out or feeling like my body was wrong mm-hmm. because the story didn't have it. And you, that experience set you up to be able to sit with these stories and not mm-hmm. just stay focused on the J-O-B at mm-hmm. hand, right? Mm-hmm. That's so, mm-hmm. that's just so powerful. And this is a great question too, because I know I had to do, a, I had some big reckonings over the last few years. So often- entrepreneurs and business owners polarize their work and their family against each other. Like, and I noticed that was coming up a lot in my own life. And I'm like, this feels odd. (laughs) This feels, this doesn't feel right. And I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear yours first and how you approach all of your work loves and all of your family and personal loves without pitting them against each other. That's, that's, it's a, it's an ongoing practice, right? There are times when I feel like I'm nailing it and I'm able to do this beautiful kind of integration. And then there are other times where the whole thing is blowing up in my face and I feel like I'm just sucking at everything. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible wife. I'm a terrible housekeeper. I'm, and I'm a terrible like worker, like where it just, it's, it's when the, when the polarization happens, everything seems to fall apart. It's when I gracefully integrate it, that everything seems to be able to find a flow. And I, I think that that's something that I'm still, you know, I'll have it for a while and then, and then, oh, I don't know, there's a pandemic that (laughs) that happens or, you know, you find a flow and then there's a pivot and then it's, trying to keep up with that pivot and pivot with the pivot, right? So I think that's whiplash pivots some days. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's and it's hard. And it's so much of what I've been trying to do is sort of 
my business is my business, my life is my life, but where can I successfully integrate them to make it work so I'm not living these different lives? And so yes. that's... Yes. And I look, I mean, when I first started my work, it was all about the style, 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 style. Everything was about the lipstick and the pants and the dresses. And then my life shifted and we started doing more adventuring together as a family, right? We pack our Prius, all four of us with a tent and a couple of pairs of underpants and we would take off for two months without a plan. So how do I incorporate that into my business? How do I change the definition of the work that I do, right? I do style. Actually, I do inside out congruency. What is it? What What are your values and how are you living them? Who are you? How do you wear it? How do you re- have that inside out congruency for, you know, from the inside out where, you're, where, the, where there's a flow? So it's yeah. really about this constant disrupt and pivot of when something shifts, how do you shift the other thing with it? But there's that, that kinky place where Things get hitched up and it's messy until you find the flow again. And then and then it's like, oh, I found it. And and then you kind of, and then me anyway, I'm like, oh, this is so great. I'm so smart. And then it happens again. And you're like, but I just, <laughs> but I just, <laughs> I just figured out how to navigate this pivot. What? I need to pivot again. So it's sort of being always being prepared for that pivot. And when my life shifts, how does that then shift the business? When my business shifts, how does that then shift my life? And how do I, how do I do that in some kind of unity? You know, it's 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 tricky and it's constant. It, I think it, it is. And for me, I, I appreciate the integration piece because I realized I was I breathed in these rules mm. of what should be like what's okay and not okay for parenting and work, and that was jamming me up. Mm. And I love what you said is, oh wait. How do I get my life to fit my business and my business to fit my life? Like together, how do we work this in? We're going to go hit the road for two months. How do I, because uh, guess what? I'm the boss of this business. But there's so many expectations that we put on ourselves and also too that maybe others have of us because of how we've communicated things or we're un, unintentionally colluding with these rules. So for me, whenever I feel like I'm pitting work against family, I have to pause. And usually I'm out of alignment with my values, which you referenced. And yeah. yeah. instead, instead of, I see that as a data point now, because they're both my loves. I love what I do and I love my family. Mm-hmm. And that's just how I'm wired. And, and I, cause I've, I had messages of, listen, as a parent, you, they need to be number one all the time. And they, they are, <laughs> and there's a negotiation mm-hmm. because to give them the life I want, I, I, and also to be the best mom, I need to, this is part of, again, my wiring. I remember my husband saying, you have to, you have to work and be a part of something that's outside of this family. You will be miserable. Mm -hmm. And that's just you. And again, there were so many rules about what it meant to be a mom. I came into parenthood knowing more what I didn't want to do and who I didn't want to be Mm. than what I did. So it was this windy path and that integration piece you said, is so personal, right? But again, for me, I don't know how that lands with you. It's when I start pitting them against each other, resenting family or resenting work. I'm, I, that's what I do, the hard pause and go, what's out of alignment? What needs to shift? And whether it's internally a belief I have or a pressure I'm putting on myself or something in either of those areas. And usually I regroup with my husband. He can, he's, he's one of those few people that can just speak through the noise mm. and I hear him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, I'm like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. So yeah, the integration and it is such a pivot, but there's so much pressure on the, and there's so many shoulds on 
what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a working parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I yeah. think with the, with the supposed tos and the shoulds, so, so many of them for me have come from my own lack of confidence in mm. being an entrepreneur. I, I wasn't, I, this was not part of my plan. <laughs> you know, I never had dreams of being an entrepreneur. There's no entrepreneurship in my family. So me starting a business, I, I mean, that was kind of bananas that I did that anyway, that, you know, that's not what I would have expected of my life. I couldn't have predicted that ever. And so for me in the beginning, especially, there was a lot of hustle for worthiness. I mean, imposter syndrome up to my eyeballs. And so, sure. you know, and it's, and it's, I'm the boss. And so I have to be the best and I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I'm going to prove myself. And if this business doesn't succeed, it's all on me and like all of that. And now I'm like, wait, I'm the boss. I can take a few weeks off if I want. <laughs> right. So I think with, that with the business maturity also comes my my own personal ma- maturity as an entrepreneur. But when I was a new entrepreneur, man, I was hustling for worthiness. Like you wouldn't believe doing those like 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, all nighters, really just trying to prove myself, prove myself, prove myself. And I think there's this natural evolution too. As you build, build your confidence in the work that you do, you don't have to hustle for worthiness as much and you're able to create more of that more of that integration. But in the early days, that was a real struggle for me because I went kind of, I had, I kind of went all in on business and then I've had to peel back and I find it to be, for me, I like to use the analogy of being a tightrope walker where there are some times <laughs> like, whoa, 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 heading to the left, heading to the left. And then you're like, okay, so I got my balance and then whoa, 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 I'm heading to the right, heading to the right. And then, you know, finding that balance again, and you might get, you know, five or six good steps in where you're in alignment before you, you know, pivot hard left or you pivot hard right, you got to find that center again. Normalizing that kind of Mm -hmm. wobbliness is not a sign of failure or inadequacy or weakness. It's just that's part of the gig (laughs) is you're wobbly. We're wobbly. (laughs) We're going to stay on the rope, but we might we wobble and it's not any because of flaws or lack of anything. It's because we're on a tightrope sometimes and that's life. And that's and that's life. And if you know you're on the tightrope, you anticipate yeah. when this yes. happens, I know I'm going to get back to center. And there's a chance I'm going to head the other direction. I'm going to have to get back to center again, right? But it's when I thought that I owned the rope and I needed to be steady all the time is where there was so much conflict and tension. So really allowing it to be a more fluid, whoa, 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 time to pivot, whoa, 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 time to pivot, you know, trying to shift the balance. That has really been the vision I have, always being able to see the rope in front of me, like there's no end to the rope. There's, I don't see the cliff that it's tied to, it just goes on forever and ever. So I know that that's part of the journey for me and it's just this constant but in the beginning, I was like, hard left, hard right, hard left. I mean, there was no balance. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm, I'm so tracking with you. Something just hit me. I don't know if this will land. I'm just working this through in my mind real time right now of, you know, going through with our children in such intensity at such an mm-hmm. early stage. And what we were able to hold and mm-hmm. capacity, I think anyone listening who's been through a lot and mm-hmm. whether it's in their own personal life or with, with raising a family yeah. or some other crisis that that almost becomes homeostasis, right? That's the norm. So then tra- being able to downshift and not have everything, when you, you talk about the hustle for worthiness, I'm wondering sometimes 
if we conflate surviving with that hustle for worthiness and that mm-hmm. intensity. Mm-hmm. And there's almost like our, I know from my, my own understanding of the nervous system, it's downshifting can feel dangerous, mm-hmm. relaxing, um, trusting, mm. and not anticipating the 10 things that could go wrong and being prepared. And that's what sets people up to be great entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. Is usually a lot of difficult life experiences. Mm-hmm. But what can burn us out is not being able to downshift mm-hmm. and down kind of help our bodies go. We're not always, we have to be so hypervigilant mm-hmm. and navigate the the wobble. Yeah. And, and, and recognize that we don't have to control the rope, but we can, you know, we're where our agency is. So I don't know if, if that makes sense, but shifting from that crisis intense mode, you know, sometimes we translate that to our work. And hundred percent. I mean, you saying that I'm just <laughs> nodding. nodding, big yes. And I went from intensive parenting and really what happened for me too, is I went from intensive, 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 intensive parenting for five to you know six years where I did nothing but parent Raisa and navigate all the medical stuff that we were navigating. So that was that was so intense that I I I became a little burnt out and I needed I needed something different. So that was also part of my swing. So I swung yes. towards starting something new, but I started it with the same intensity in which I stepped away. Yes. From. That's what you're that's what you're saying. And I'm it's landing for me real good. <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, that's it. Yeah. Just thinking through that mm-hmm. and it, it was like, oh wait. I'm not in the same place I had to, and that's bringing it back to the integration yeah. piece yeah. and that there are parts of me that didn't realize we were at a different season in mm-hmm. life. So love, I love that rumble. I'm curious for you. I mean, this is a good segue. How has parenting your kids helped heal burdens from your own childhood? Parenting is hard. <laughs> it's, it is so hard. And we're, you know, right now I have a 14 year old to Raisa, who was my, you know, 14 years ago, my child that was born with all this stuff. So I have a 14 year old and an eight year old. And, you know, what I'm learning so, like, my big learning right now is how we have to parent so differently, th- these different children. And it's, it, it's just unbelievable to me how the tactics that you use for one child and you learn and you think this is what makes sense, when you try to distribute them evenly, they don't, it doesn't land, it doesn't work. And so, you know, it, it, I I mean, I suppose it, I look back, I don't know, I don't, I look back at my childhood and I, I grew up in a much, very different kind of family than the one that I leave now. I grew up in a, I grew up in a fundamentalist uh, Christian family so I took a hard swing. I can tell you that. So really, yeah, I grew up in a, a yeah. fundamentalist Christian family, going to Christian school. I had body. Sh- I mean, I was shamed starting at a very young age. My fear in life was burning in the fires of hell and suffer e- suffering eternal damnation. That was, was a purity part. purity culture type of thing. Um, and- Pentecostal Christian Christianity that was the way that I grew up. And so in my early formative years, and and I. The, I my childhood was laced with fear. I was terrified. Wow. I was terrified. I mean, and that was a scripture we learned in like kindergarten. 
burning in the fire really, of hell and suffering. Not trauma-informed right? So I look no. back at that and I look at the times I was sent home from school for wearing a short sleeve shirt because it was too provocative as a six-year-old, right? So early on in my life, I was trained to fear my body, that my body was a sin, right? It was a, I, I mean, that was that was my original learnings about my body was that my body was a sin, right? And their body was going to be the catalyst to eternal damnation eternal. if you didn't hide it, yeah. judge it, yeah. whatever it is. Wow. Yeah. So that's, and, and I, so my childhood was very much within the structure of at least where I grew up, my church was curiosity was the, the devil. You know what I mean? And I would be like, well, how did Jonah live in a whale? Like that doesn't make sense to me. And it was shut up and have faith, right? That was very much no questions asked, blind faith. Don't. And so I look back at my childhood and my uh, I at one point think that I was curious. I was a curious child. And then curiosity became this thing that was what made me bad. Curiosity was bad. Creativity, bad, 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 bad. And so my years through, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, when I eventually switched over to public school were torture for me because I still had these foundational beliefs that curiosity was bad. Don't ask questions. We'd learn about evolution. And I would, I, by the time I was in fourth grade, I had severe hives. I was getting gray hair. I mean, the stress on my body was so intense when they switched from Christian to public school because the, the, the paradigms were so different and I didn't know how to navigate that. And I don't think I really started learning how to navigate that until I was into my thirties, right? Mm. This was something that really kept me stuck and was a story that I had in my head for a long, long time. And so the way that I parent now, holy buckets, (laughs) it is so different, right? Because I don't want my kids having that kind of fear. I want my kids to appreciate their bodies for what their bodies do, these incredible vessels that house their soul fire, their spirit. Ask questions, get curious. We'll talk about anything and everything. Nothing is taboo. Nothing is off limits. Let's talk about it, right? So when I look, I mean, the difference between the way that I was raised and the ways that I'm raising my children they, they couldn't be more different in my view. How has that been healing for you and, and, and releasing burdens from that time for you? I, I still, that's a good question. I, it helps me. So the healing that I've done, even like with my, I think my healing had to happen outside of my parenting to be able to affect my parenting. Right. And so to be able to change that that narrative of you're not creative, don't be curious, don't ask questions, right. Or your body is a sin. I had to do a lot of work to build a relationship with my body because my foundational belief, even though intellectually I knew it wasn't true, because I'm a you still age, that, yeah. you know, liberal woman, that is still, it's like embedded in my body. And so to come up against that over and over and over and the years of work that it's taken for me to 
build a relationship with my body, to be able to say the thing that I value the most is curiosity, right? But the work that I had to do to get there, to be able to parent my children in this way has been immense. So I don't know if the parenting itself has been the catalyst of change, but the catalyst of change had to happen for me to be able to parent the way that I do. So to be the parent you wanted to be, it required that deeper work. Mm -hmm. So it it may be being a parent was the catalyst mm-hmm. realizing I don't want to repeat that. I know yeah. for me, yeah. that's definitely been the case. And and I think there's also been opportunities and moments where I'd have memories of how I was parented or things that were said or done. And then I get to do it different real mm-hmm. time. And there mm-hmm. is just something kind of those little subtle moments mm-hmm. of, yeah, we're doing this different mm-hmm. and it's scary and it's exciting mm-hmm. and it's empowering. And even in work too, mm-hmm. I mean, even in just how what, or in my community, just doing things differently, slowing down with some of that stuff. I, Cause I do think some of our biggest, I do, I do believe some of our biggest, our biggest pains and our biggest burdens do inspire our life's work. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing, I didn't know this part about your story and from my prep work and my gosh, it makes so much sense mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. about the work that you do. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You you, re- you talked about Style School and you recently launched an updated program. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to sunset Style School and then create your newest offer, Revolu- Revel, I'm going to say it right, Revolution. Revolution. Is that right? Yes, Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little play on words, right? Not revolution, revolution, where you're reveling in yourself, in your body, in what your body can do, in your you-ness, right? In your soul fire, in your spirit or whatever, you know, your your essence, your beauty, your, your all the amazing things. And so I taught 20 sessions of style school. I taught it for five years and it was incredible. It was the, it's what uh, it's been. My business has been Stacia style school and, and I've loved it. And it's been important work. And they were five week sessions and women would come in thinking about the pants and they would leave asking much bigger questions, right? When they're like, Oh, it's actually not about the pants. No, it's actually not about the pants. (laughs) You know, it's really your closet is a gateway into some really deep, meaningful work, but work that can be really hard too. Okay. Pause here for a second. Just pause here. Your closet is a gateway to deep, meaningful, and very likely hard work. Mm -hmm. I just want to hold that thought. Whoever's listening, like, you know, thinking about your closet right now. I love that looking at my closet as a trailhead. Mm. I've been, I made some big changes this year. I, I've decided not to buy any clothes this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, I'm I'm of the personality I enjoy. I enjoy purchasing things, mm-hmm. but I realized I was tipping especially after I have a whole new pandemic wardrobe which is badass and awesome and supporting great businesses mm-hmm. I love and are doing great work, but there was something deeper there. And I had I told a friend I said I'm going to do this for a year. She said, "Well, most people do a fast for like you know, 30 days, maybe 90. You don't, you don't, I'm like, no, I feel this in my soul that Mm -hmm. I have to do. There's something deeper. And I moved half my closet uh, and stored away and put just what I'm wearing and I'll shift it around and I'll shop my spring wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little nervous. Mm -hmm. I'll confess. Mm -hmm. I'm a little nervous, Mm -hmm. but I, I unsubscribed from all of my new like emails. And I remember feeling like, (gasps) and I'm like, 
Rebecca, you can subscribe and I, you know, <laughs> muted all, all of my social media. Cause I, I love these companies. I love their mission and there's something exciting about them, but there was some, there's still, I'm still teasing out. I'm mm-hmm. still like, I'm only wrapping up Q1 here at the, mm-hmm. during this conversation. So I'm just really, I will be using this <laughs> in both my <laughs> clinical and leadership work about the trailhead. I'll be bringing you, I'll be bringing you into some of work. Like, let's talk about your closet as a trailhead. What's going on? Wow. So sorry, I just wanted to give that statement a moment. I'll be thinking about that for a while. So you sunsetted style school. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the why for that. And I, I and, and let's hear more about your new offer. The why was because I, I started to get I don't I the, I don't know if the right word is resentful but I I was teaching to the paradigm of um. I was teaching to a pair I mean so essentially when we get dressed we get dressed to look good right so that's essentially what we want as as women mostly as women we want to do these pants make my butt look good does this is this flatter the flattering word oh the flattering word it kills me <laughs> Why, why does it kill you? What, do you, what bothers you about flattering? Because really flattering is, do I, how close do I come to the ideal? Here's the <laughs> apex of beauty. Flattering is how close am I to the apex of beauty? How That's how most people. To meeting the standard, how, right? So most people that ask that question that you've worked with really were comparing themselves to culture's ideal of beauty yes, and enough. Beauty. Yep. And, and so that's what, so we. Okay. Yeah. So even when we talk about balance and proportion, so I've got wide hips and a narrow torso. How do I make my hips look more narrow and my chest look a little wider so that I fit the ideal? So they fit the, so that I'm closer to the standard, right? I taught this. This was, this is what I taught. I taught like, here's how, if you, you know, if you're self-conscious of your hips, here are some hip minimizing, visual minimizing tricks. And it, you know, it's the idea of balance and proportion, which goes into sort of like the art and science of style. And the tricky part is I still value some of that, but I needed to create a program that said, yes, this, but really what's important is how does it make you feel? Because the way that I was teaching it was to say something like, Oh, if you're feeling this way, why don't you put, you know, wear black pants on the bottom and a white shirt on the top and that'll visually shift the balance a little bit. So I had all the tricks and I got all the, I knew how to create, I knew how to look at a silhouette and, 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 and style it so that different features could be enhanced and other ones would be sort of like pushed into the background. Right. And so what I, <laughs> and I like, I even have shame just saying that, but that was how I found my way back into my body, right? So personally, when I was, I had, I hated my body, terrible wardrobe, only yoga, like beige yoga pants, disaster. You know, I had really broken up a style and I found my beige yoga pants. Oh, I had yes, there's a beige thing. cropped yoga pants. They were terrible. And I, it's a thing. And I had two <laughs> pairs. They were so terrible. I had two pairs because <laughs> it was important that I proved to myself how disgusting my body was that I wore the most oh, because I had gotcha. to make sure I held up that storyline. Right. So, so anyway, so I found my way back into my body by learning how to dress my body. So for instance, my body is shaped like a triangle. So I'm narrow torso, wide hips. And so I learned that if I wore more snug things in the bottom and boat neck tops that created more balance, what I was doing was wearing oversized things 
on the bottom half of my body and really narrow things. And I was sort of exaggerating that lack of balance. I'm throwing quotes around balance. So I was able to create more balance. And then I was, that brought me into relationship with my body and go, oh, so my hips aren't really the problem. I'm just wearing clothes that are overemphasizing them so that when I look in the mirror, all I see are my hips. But if I flip my formula a little bit, I can actually see my whole body. So for me, it's been a, an incremental, it was phase one to bringing me back into relationship with my body and to say, my body's not a problem, but when I dress to hide my body, I overemphasize the parts of my body that I feel shame about, the ones that are the farthest away from fitting into the culturally acceptable beauty standards, right? And so I used it. And then quickly was like, okay, now that I'm in relationship with my body, I don't actually need these rules because now I know my body isn't the problem. So it was phase one and it was my jump to phase two. Style school, it was really a phase one teaching. Okay, first we're going to do this. And then once gals start to get it, I'm like, okay, now throw the rules away. Now we don't need them. Put them in the garbage, burn them. But they got you back into your body. Now you know your body's not a problem. Let's let that go and let's move forward, right? But you're like, yeah, but I, but I, but I finally fit. I'm finally there. I'm not letting go of this to save my life. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know. So then, you know, we the there needs to be like a longer process to like here is how you stop hiding, and we can use these concepts of balance and proportion to bring us back into our bodies so that we see ourselves differently because we judge ourselves by what we look at in the mirror, right? And so by shifting that a little bit, we can start to look at ourselves without being, I don't know, I for me, I was disgusted. I'd look in the mirror and I was disgusted. And that was that was shame, right? So I did this sort of like little external tweak that helped me lower the temperature gauge on the shame so that I could start to deal with the shame. But when I was up here, I couldn't deal with it. I had to find I had to lower that temperature gauge a little bit. And that was the way that I was able to lower my shame temperature gauge so that I could approach it in a different way. Style, style school is shame triage. It's shame it triage. was phase yep. one. Stop the bleeding. Yep. Stop the Let's bleeding. stop the bleeding. Turn the turn the thermometer okay. down. And after 20 sessions, I was like, I can't, I can't teach this stuff anymore. Like I'm, I don't want to talk about the belts anymore. Should I'm really concerned. So for my shape, should I wear a narrow belt, a medium width belt or a two inch belt? I just, I'm really stressed. Cause what if I do it wrong? <gasps> like, <laughs> like I, I worked in that phase one triage, turn the temperature down for so long. I I just, I got, I got a little burnt out in that place. Right. And I wanted to do the Okay. And, and then what's next? How do we navigate the actual shame? How do we talk about that? We can still use our closets because it becomes a trigger for us. And so it brings some of this stuff to the surface so that we can navigate it in community, talk about it, hear other women say, me too, me too, you too. But I always thought that if my hips looked like yours, then I would be happy. But you have those hips and you have a thing. And then you start to see that the game is rigged and we're chasing this unrealistic ideal that even if you have the ideal, you got to hustle to keep it. And then you're terrified of when your body is going to change or when the ideal is going to change, because we all know 
<laughs> we all know it shifts, right? So even if you happen to fit the cultural standard today, it could shift tomorrow and you're not going to fit anymore. Your body could change. Holy crap. So you got to hustle to stay in the box. You got to hustle to meet that standard. So that's the work that I feel really compelled to do now is to navigate the bigger picture, right? I can, and the, the cool thing is within this new platform of the revolution, I can say, let's talk balance and proportion real quick, right? Here's how it works. Some days you're going to use it. If you're, if the temperature gauge of your shame is high, let's turn the gauge down a little bit. Let's get you balanced so you can look in the mirror and not hate yourself. And then let's have the conversation about the shame. Because changing your body, it might be turning the flames down a little bit, but it's not putting the flame out, right? So we've got to still navigate that flame because tomorrow it could crank right back up again, right? So I can still kind of do that phase one work, but I also have more capacity and space to do the other work, which is the essential work. The gateway is how do I change my outside so I feel better? And then people realize, oh, wait, if that's my primary focus to feel better, I'll be chasing that the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And you're offering then, okay, here's the triage. Here's some things for you to kind of heal your relationship with the outsides mm -hmm. of it. And then let's do some inner work to sustain mm -hmm. that change so that as things fluctuate with you and culture, because culture yeah. always changes its mind and what's enough. Yep. Oh. You know, and, and we breathe that in and then you get to do that deeper work to build and what I call it. Cause I, I I'm, I'm steeped in and practice Brittany Brown's shame yeah, resilience yeah. work and shame doesn't go away. It's part of, part of the, the spectrum of emotions. Mm -hmm. We think we can kill it, but we can't exile, but we can help heal the wounds mm -hmm. that shame's caused. And so is that, is that part of what you're doing in your new program? Yes. Yes. It's the, it's the long, it's the maintenance work. It's the maintenance oh, work, right? So good. It's the maintenance work because I can get to the, you know, I can do five weeks of work and I can figure out my today body. That's the language that I use. And then six months have go by and your body shifts and you're like, holy crap, I hate myself again. And it's like, so you know what I mean? Like I hate my body again. My body's betraying oh, yeah. me. My body's doing this terrible thing to me. And it's like, no, your body's job is not to stay the same. Your body's job is actually to change <laughs> despite what you've been told, right? So really it's right. the shifting of paradigm away from my body's worthiness, which is therefore my worthiness, is dependent on how tightly I adhere to the beauty standards, how closely I fit or don't fit, right? To saying that's crap. It's still the, the it's still the standard that's used and that we have projected on us all the time. And there's another paradigm where we value what our bodies do. So I can be mad at my thighs for having cellulite, but holy crap, they hiked 14 miles the other day. What about that? That's awesome. Okay. I'm with you. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you're familiar with my lens and I, I'm with you hundred percent. I also know it's really hard to move past that phase oh. of I just all I've got is is just to want to just feel a little bit better here that deeper work. Yeah. I don't know about that yet. I mean, because that's scary, right? Or it doesn't feel it's not efficient work. It's not quick work, either. No. No. But changing the belt is quicker. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. I think that's what I see a lot of folks, whether it's, you know, in a really like as touched on earlier, focusing on consumption culture. Mm -hmm. 
And whether it's media, whether it's stuff, you know, whether it's the clothing for me, I'm paying attention to, but now I'm like, I want to decorate everything. I'm like, no, easy. easy." (laughs) (laughs) And and I think there's something about this that's connected to consumption culture Mm -hmm. and the newest and the best. And, and you're really passionate about thrifting. Yes. And, and, and so I, just briefly, I would love for you to talk about some of the common misunderstandings and stereotypes around thrifting, because I've had to tackle some of them myself. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter, she will not buy anything new now. She mm-hmm. wants everything from the 80s. If it's not, I, I told her, you can't get bras and underwear from the 80s. And she's mad. And I'm like, that's nasty. I told her it was illegal. It's illegal to sell bras and underwear from the 80s. And I will not break the law. It's hyperbole. We do hyperbole here too, Stasia. We do hyperbole. But I'm like, okay, that's that's stank. That's nasty. But you know, we're going to get 80s style. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely hook her up there. Yeah. But yeah, what are some of the common misunderstandings and stereotypes around thrift? that you share with your students? So one of the, so there, there's a lot. One is, and they, and there, there are things that I used to be ashamed of that I'm no longer ashamed of. So, you know, like, mm-hmm. what if I buy something at the thrift store and the person that donated it sees me? Oh, interesting. <gasps> <The terror. laughs> right. So that's a, that's a thing. Like what if people see me wearing their, their throwaways? Right. And so to me, it's just a matter of a reframe. I live in a small community of 14,000 people and it happens where I'll be walking down the street and somebody will be like, do you get that sweater at Experienced Goods? Sure did. That was mine. Right. And so there can be this really cool exchange in my small community where I see people wearing a dress that I donated and I'm like walking down the street with a handbag and she's like, do you get that Experienced Goods? I did. That was mine. Oh, my word. I loved it. I got it. Here's the story. And so I think if you celebrate it as it still had life, it was still, it just didn't fit, it didn't fit me anymore, whether it be because we're dynamic women and we shift and change and something no longer works for us, you know, it's like milk, it expires. That shirt's still in great shape, but it expired <laughs> for me. Right. So I passed it on. Now somebody else gets to gets to enjoy it and and feel beautiful in it. And they got it for four bucks. What a treasure. Right. So I think that is just a matter of a reframe for a lot of people. I think there's also I hear this all the time. My thrift store doesn't have anything good. Mm. I hear that all the time, all the time, all the time. And I think when you come back to consumerism, consumerism, I walk in, there's something there's a million things I can find something I should be, you know, I should be able to find something. You go to a thrift store. It's a crapshoot. I mean, I can walk into a thrift store and not find anything for eight eight trips. I can literally go eight times and walk out with nothing. But I'm not going to write a story that says my thrift store doesn't have stuff for me. Because I know thrifting, it's a different than your mall, mall, mall mindset. Yeah, mall mindset doesn't translate to thrifting mindset. And it's quick and easy. Uh, I have 20 minutes. I want to be able to go in and I want to find something. Yes, which is American culture. American culture. It's a complete, you got to throw out all your expectations. And all of a sudden you're an explorer. You're heading on an expedition and you don't know what you're going to find. You might not find anything, but you might. Right. So it's a completely different mindset. You got to drop all typical standard shopping expectations. You got to leave them at the door because stores do, so long as there are people in your community, 
that donate to this like and then like do you donate to the thrift store well i do do you donate just shit or do you know donate good stuff i don't well see other people do too you just might not be hitting it how many times have you been twice that's not there's no data there go to the thrift store 45 times and then report back <laughs> that's the appropriate kind of data right it's a high volume practice and it's almost part of the detox of i mean you brought mall culture mm-hmm. of this lots of choices and quick and fast. And so that means, but this is not efficient, but efficiency sometimes is more costly Mm -hmm. and does, you know, I just, for me realizing how so many of the things I'm really caring about are in conflict Mm -hmm. with ease, Mm -hmm. the ease of consumer culture, I should say. And so I'm like, dang it, because I do love efficiency. Well, (laughs) I really do. But efficiency at what cost? Right. So if yeah, you then go yeah. back and you look at it through a sustainability lens, yes, there that are feels... enough clothes on this planet to clothe us <laughs> right now. Right. So I will say I'm looking for a a white sweater. I don't go and buy a white sweater. I will look for a white sweater for six months, eight months, eighteen months. And I wait. And so it's also developing this, this, it's pulling me away from quick fix mentality. Yes. And saying, you you don't need it. You want it. And at what cost? Are you going to really go to H&M and buy this synthetic thing just because you want it now? I want it now. I mean, isn't that's like from the (laughs) Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know? uh, I want it now. Yeah. um, really bad accent. My, my <laughs> friends in the UK are probably cringing. So yeah, that that's actually really interesting because if we sit with the discomfort of not getting it right now, then other stuff comes up and that's not fun. Mm-hmm. And, but that's the work. I'm not like that comes up. Right. So, and, and then you hold on to what you do have, even if it doesn't work for you, because what if you can't replace it? So it's this, it's, this is, when I thrift, I am stepping into a mindset of trust in the universe will provide. As opposed That's to, really vulnerable. That's really vulnerable. It is. It is especially That's if you grew up with money issues, stuff, you know what I mean? You grew up in, in a place of lack, which I did, you know, grew up very, we grew up very poor. And so that's been, it's a practice for me, right? And I will wait sometimes. I have waited I remember I just bought it. I was looking for a down vest. I looked for three years and then I finally bought one new because I couldn't find one. But I waited. I remember three that. Years. Three <laughs> I remember you posting about this. Years. And I finally, I found a sustainable brand and I waited for it to go on sale. And I spent $119 and I'm so proud of this vest that I own and I wear it and it's like a treasure for me. Because I waited a long time and then I saved my money and I bought it from a, a company that's, you know, a certified B company with B Corp. Ethical, certified, B Corp. B Corp. Yeah, certified B Corp. And, you know, they've got good, good ethical practices. And so then it felt good to me. So if I'm going to live this life of congruency, then even and I think, you know, I vote with my dollars, I'm going to I'm going to mm-hmm. make sustainable choices with the way that I purchase and 
for me, thrifting keeps me away from fast fashion, keeps me away from the environmental impacts of fast fashion, which are absolutely devastating. You watch one documentary and it'll, it's terrifying, right? Uh, It is. And it breaks that habit of, I want it now. The Amazon mentality now. What? Well, I have to wait 48 hours? Are you kidding me? Right? And I'm like, I waited three years to get a vest. We can leave you know, it, you know? I am, and I'm thinking of a lot of a lot of my mom friends and a lot of other parents that are just barely keeping everything together, juggling, and they're like, "Oh, now you're telling me I have to go do all this stuff." And mm-hmm. I don't. That's not the message no, 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 no. I, at all. I want to make sure I just jump in yeah. there and say, it's about staying curious and and just. I I, I do think it is about slowing down mm-hmm. and and picking and choosing. The stuff. I think everyone I talk to is like, I have too much stuff and I'm over it. And, and, and we don't know. Yeah. We don't know the options. We don't know the culture of yeah. thrift. I mean, the culture of like secondhand or even, but you know what I love and people are catching on is those Facebook groups. It's the buy nothing, the buy nothing groups. Group. Have you, mm-hmm. you guys, those buy nothing yeah. groups and those are catching on. But there's a part of me that still just doesn't trust something unless it's brand new. I don't know where I've internalized mm. that. So I'm playing around with that. So I'm noticing if it's not new, why does it, why is it less than in my mind? There's a little Mm -hmm. something I'm negotiating with, but I just want to make sure too, some folks that are so full with work and kids and keeping Mm -hmm. it together, sometimes Amazon or Target is my BFF. And I, I still, I mean, we still do Amazon because I also don't want this to it'd be a righteous endeavor that impacts our mental, our mental well-being. I still use Amazon. I mean, when I need batteries, yeah. I use Amazon or whatever. You know? yeah, it isn't about shaming that or being no. righteous. It's about getting to the root, though, of how we may be colluding with things that are out of alignment with what matters. Yeah. And that maybe some of the stereotypes around, especially thrifting and secondhand, might be holding us back from contributing. So I love this conversation. I feel like we could go on. I want to I want to touch on something else that I feel like you do really well, at least you're committed to is is boundaries. And 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 you're constantly rumbling and negotiating with that. And I want to just touch on that. What what boundaries and practices are essential for you to be the best human and leader? Boundary, I mean, in terms of boundaries, I think for me, where I have to set my boundaries, it, one is I have to set my boundaries. And I think that <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. Number one. <laughs> I think there's a lot of pressure out there to here's what your boundaries should be. Here's what I think your boundaries should be. And sort of, you know what I mean? And really saying, but what feels good to me, right? And, and trusting that I can set my own boundaries that, that are built within the foundation of my own integrity. So good. And I, I think that's, that's actually one of the hardest things in a, in a world where we're receiving so much information, especially where I struggle, is when it's something I'm not sure I know how to do well. I don't really know how to do this. Can somebody please tell me what my boundary should be? Oh, yes, I get that. Oh, my gosh, that so lands. And, yes. and then, and I've done this. And then I do it and then it doesn't work for me. And then, oh, how easy it is for me to say, but you gave me that boundary. It's not my fault, right? So it's an easy (laughs) way to escape ownership of your own decisions. And so for me, the big work with boundaries is owning my boundaries and not getting input and then saying, what is my boundary that works for me? Because I'm going to have to deal with it no matter which way this turns, I may pick up, I may establish a boundary 
that is a healthy boundary, I may establish a boundary that isn't a healthy boundary that's determined by pain and hurt and trigger and rawness, right? And then something goes kerfuffly with it. I have to own that, right? And then I shift it from there. So my biggest, like, I feel like where I'm working the hardest with my boundaries is owning them, letting them be mine and whatever the consequence of that boundary, whether it be good or bad, not having it take me down and feel like a loser who can't do anything, but to use it as an, as a data point, you used that word earlier to reestablish, to reestablish the boundary. And Yes, I think it's, and I, I am in a place right now where I feel like that I can struggle with that sometimes. Um, so it's a constant, this is where congruency, inside out congruency is so important to me. And it's something I practice in my closet that I've been able to tune into it in other areas of my life. If I'm wearing something and it's not congruent, I can feel it. If I drink something and it's not congruent, I now can feel it where I couldn't feel it before. If I ate something that didn't settle with me, I didn't know because I didn't know what congruency felt like, right? So now it's receiving messages that feels good to me, that doesn't, not who told me because they're smarter than me and and I got to go to, I want everybody else to tell me what to do, but really owning my work and my, that, that's been the, that's my work right now. Yeah. And it circles back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation about how your curiosity was crushed out of mm-hmm. you. And squelched and 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 demonized literally, yep, yep. and and now it's like staying curious. How do I feel? Where does that land? What am I noticing? And how that really you're you're just bringing that all back to, um, where what did I learn from this experience? And I, I'm curious, where do you see boundaries in your closet connected? How do how does your closet help you know that maybe you're in um, a boundary blunder? When something hurts my feelings, like if my oh. pants hurt my feelings. Then I (laughs) (laughs) okay. Keep going. Keep going. I love this. See, I mean, how many times, unless you're magic, you've put on a pair of pants and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't for sure this or my belly or my butt or my crotch or my. I mean, who knows? There's my ankles, my knee, something. Right, your pants. You've been in a mood and then you put your pants on and it shifts your mood. That if I let a pair of pants hurt my feelings, I am in a bad place, right? Like I have to be able to, so it's like, I learned that if I can't, if I'm going to be in a relationship with a pair of pants, I'm going to let the pants hurt my feelings. How am I navigating human relationships? If I don't dare to stand up to a pair of pants or those underpants that you wear that give you a wedgie. And you're like, keep wearing them and they keep making you feel bad because you write a story in your head that your butt's too big or whatever, right? If I'm going to let my clothes bully me, then there's a good chance I'm letting people bully me too. Boom. Holy cow. I think that is a powerful word to wrap up this conversation that could go on for hours. I said that to you before we started. I'm like, we could talk all day. Yes. If our clothes are bullying us, we're likely allowing other people to bully us. And that is... Uh, definitely a sign that we're out of sorts with our boundaries. That's a a powerful word. And I love the integration and the relationship we have and how our closet can help be a place for us to feel deeper connected to what matters most and how it's also a data point that we're out of alignment and moving away from being safe and being loving towards ourselves, let alone others. So 
I love this. This was such a treat. I am so excited to have finally have a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Where can those listening to the show find you? You can find me over on Instagram. My handle is Stacia Savasic. Same thing on Facebook and my website. Same thing, StaciaSavasic.com. And with Revolution mm-hmm. um, coming up, when are have you already launched it? If people are interested, how can they get more information about that or participate if they want um, to? So there will be, I'm, I started with a slow launch. I thought I had to do this big giant launch. And then I was like, hey, I'm the boss. <laughs> You're the boss. I'm the boss. I don't have to do this big stressful thing. So I'm just kind of slow launching it right now. I've got, you know, I launched it to 200 women last month. Yeah. And 80 of them signed up. So that was awesome. That was a great conversion. Congratulations. So now I'm just kind of like cracking the door open a little bit at a time because I want it. I want it to grow organically. We've started with a core group and then you add a few and then the group binds and then a few more in the group binds. And so it is a membership community. So you can come and go as you please, though people tend to stay, right? And I I had a similar membership community for eight months with my alum from style school, and many of them have transitioned in um, because the work is cumulative. We're doing the same work and we're looking at it through a different lens every month. I love right? it. So, and it, it is cumulative. It's cumulative. And so I talk about it. I'm, I'll be talking more about it on Instagram, you know, on my newsletter list, on Facebook. So it's it's just kind of all out there because it's new and, it, and it's brand new. So I'm still learning to talk about it too. Right. So, Wonderful. Yeah. Well, so thrilled to be able to brag about it. And we'll make sure to have links in our show notes to all the ways to connect with you and your very important work. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for your leadership and for your heart. And I want to be buzzing about this conversation for days. So really grateful to know you a little bit better. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca. If you're feeling at odds with your daily life and relationships on a regular basis, there's a good chance you can blame it on living a divided life. And rooted in that divide is fear. In particular, an unrelenting fear of rejection and being seen as not enough. If you manage this fear by hiding behind your protective masks, you'll feel depleted from living this way. So how are you navigating the varied and sometimes very conflicting needs from work and personal aspects of your life? And would you say you're living a divided life? And if so, what needs to shift to make it more whole? And how do you respond when you feel fear around making mistakes or being misunderstood? And are these responses to fear moving you towards greater wholeness or a more divided life? Stacia shared with us the power of integrating our loves in our personal and professional lives instead of dividing them. This has led to her having more clarity to adapt to the needs of her family and make big decisions about her signature offer that has been a game changer for her and all she works with. Now, you can't kill fear, nor should you try. But you sure can do the work to lead your fear instead of it leading you. You'll have more energy and confidence when the protective masks relax so you can live a more self-led life that fosters an integrated life. Leading is hard and leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, you don't mind making hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. 
finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, stay connected to me, and find additional free unburdened leader resources along with ways to work with me at rebeccaching.com. 